Hey, Nevo, welcome back to school. Thank you. So I want to take a, a step back for a second and talk a little bit about what you do as, as a partner at uh, DYDX, which is a digital transformation practice, and it's based in, in Cape Town, uh, South Africa. Uh, but you guys have clients all over the world, uh, correct yeah, me if I'm correct. wrong. And people all over the world. So, so we've, we've based kind of our offices in South Africa. So we have kind of a, an office here. Um, not that I'm, I must admit, there very often. Um, but our people are pretty much everywhere, uh, mostly like Europe and, and Africa. We kind of stick to EMEA timeframes. Yeah, so, so that's, that's what it is. And, and the practice really does three things. The first is product and service design. So we work with our clients to understand you know, what are the, the digital, what are the opportunities that digital transformation provides them from growing their revenues um, or, you know, getting new customers um, based on offering new products or services to the market or tweaking their existing products and services. So that's, that's the first one. Um, the second component is really looking at what we call culture and future of work which is in effect saying, how do we optimize a company's processes utilizing, you know, again, service design and those kind of human-centered design methodologies to help companies increase retention of their clients and increase their margins. So in other words, keep clients happier for longer at a lower cost of operations. Um, and the reason why we call it culture and future of work is what we have discovered over time is that the reason a lot of changes don't stick is because they approach from a technology perspective and not a human change perspective. And the really difficult part is actually the human change perspective. The technology part is actually fairly simple and straightforward nowadays and getting easier and easier as you go with all the, the new environments. So we try to make the culture piece and the change piece central to our way of thinking around what we're going to do to make sure that we have the the buy-in to make those processes used. Um, otherwise, it's just another process that people avoid. And the final, final piece that we do is utilizing, again, the same kind of human-centered design on that purchase journey that we spoke about a bit earlier on, kind of saying, how do you build automation along a purchase journey so that you understand how you take a client from or a potential client from interested to, to, to purchased? And really looking at that, um, at that kind of funnel there, uh, again, very much more. That, that's more kind of data and tools and those kind of things to drive that. And, and that's what the the business does. And you said automated. I want to pause on that for a second. Does digital transformation? Because you know, it's it's. Let's admit it. It's a buzzword. I don't think a lot of people, you know, really sort of looked into what it means for their company, but. Let's take it as that. Um, does automated mean or equal or digital transformation, does that equal automation? In other words, let me rephrase the question, especially now with COVID, all the affordances of digital or going digital, it's kind of um, almost seductive to kind of make the whole thing fully automated. Is that the direction that we're going in? Uh, I don't think so. Um, our experience of digital is a digital transformation. It's a lot to do with changing the ways that people are working to get out of an industrial age mindset into a kind of, you know, new age or, or, or forward-looking mindset. You know, the, the example I, I like to give 
is, and, 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 and a lot when we speak to people even about remote work, right? A lot of people are resistant to remote work and work with lots of our clients just to get their heads around remote working and how do they adopt remote working as a digital transformation component? Because it's actually a key skill to be able to have a, a, a distributed workforce and it fundamentally changes the cost structures of your business. Um, you know, if you have people working in flexi time, people working all around the world, maybe they're becoming more of a freelancer model versus an employee model. All of those things are substantial income statement type decisions that you make as a company, which are part of digital transformation because you're utilizing digital technology to enable you to do that. But at the end of the day, they're, they're soft issues versus hard issues. Um, and they become you know, the soft issues become hard issues effectively because they, they come down into your margin. So, so the example I really like is is think of Amazon in 1996, right? And it maybe shows my age, but I remember Amazon in 1996 and 1997 when everyone said Amazon is a terrible bookshop, right? And why is Amazon a terrible bookshop? I mean, other than the fact that the homepage looked terrible, um, you can't browse books in Amazon. You know, what I like when I go to a bookshop is to go into the bookshop, to look through the books, to read them, to sit down, to speak to the person behind the counter, have them recommend some books to me that are on the shelf. Maybe they have to order a book. I'll get it in two weeks. But actually, it's kind of this whole interaction. It's an experience that I really enjoy of going to buy a book, right? And I may or may not buy a book during that process, but it's an, I had an experience. I actually entertained myself for two hours. However, if we look at it over time, what we're saying is that Amazon wasn't very good at helping me browse for books, but seeing the results of Amazon, which is by far the largest bookshop ever and has sold more books, created more authors, you know, led to more people reading, all those kind of things that it's done that has completely transformed reading and buying books. The one thing it didn't do that was different to what we were experienced was, was that experience of browsing. So actually what we're saying is Amazon is a terrible experiential browsing kind of time thing to do before you go see a movie or, you know, just a way to kill an afternoon, right? It's bad at that, but it's brilliant at selling books. And for me, when you're looking at, at again, a lot of digital transformation, a lot of these uh, components, it's that emotional and cultural thing that you have to go back and say, well, hold on a second. In a newly digitally transformed world, was the way we were doing this before, like an office, was an office really focused around getting people to be more productive and co constructive and getting work done as effectively as possible? Or was it really more of an experiential thing and an, almost an entertainment thing in some way where we'd go there and we'd go through the ritual of being at work, just like we'd go through the ritual of buying a book? You know, is it a ritualized form? And, and then you have to unpack that and work through those cultural issues as you start looking, what does the world of the work of the future look like? You know, if I don't have that ritualized experience, can I, do I create new, what are the new rituals look like? What, what are the new experiences that I have? And, and we find that's often the interesting thing that we, we have to do is when we're working on a new process flow, it's going back to actually what does this thing really need to achieve? And how do we achieve that as effectively as possible, not forgetting the human elements and understanding that we have to bring rituals back into it, but that the rituals need to change to kind of keep this effective. And that's, that for me is, is really digital transformation in the workplace, right? It's that creation of new rituals to replace the old, letting go of the old, creating new rituals and creating new processes that then drive the efficiency and the value. But if you don't do the human piece first, people just don't use 
the automation pieces as much as you would like them to, you know, and, 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 and the new processes. I mean, there's a real reason why so many digital transformation projects fail. And, and there's a great report from McKinsey and a couple of other people where they look at the, the indications of success, what will make success with digital transformation. But that understanding of people need rituals, we're still human beings, we still want to have meaning in what we do. We don't want to take, you know, you want to take tasks away, but you want to kind of elevate the jobs. You want to elevate the creativity as you take away the tasks that, that, you know, that can be automated. Yeah. Is that why, so in that context, let's take the Amazon example. Is that why they brought back or I guess reinstated the, the bookstore? I mean, they had, they still have uh, a bookstore, right? A couple of bookstores, like physical brick and mortar you know, they figured out that while, I guess, reshaping or creating a new ritual, they destroyed like a part of what was, you know, essential, maybe emotional to that reading experience and then decided to reinstate that as a, as a brick and mortar. I, I must admit, I have no idea why they decided to reinstate their, their bookstores. I mean, it could be that they found that that was something they could reintroduce, maybe, or maybe they found that it was, you know, like maybe they just felt they were leaving money on the table um, and for some experiential gaps. The fact that it hasn't been rolled out broadly maybe means it's an experiment and they're testing stuff, but we don't know yet. Um, I mean, by the way, I still really enjoy going to, to a physical bookshop, right? But if I look at the percentage of books I will buy from a physical bookshop versus Amazon, right, it's maybe 5% of the books I buy will be in a physical bookshop because it's something I see on the shelf. I want to give somebody a gift. And that feels, and it feels like a better way to give a gift personally, I think. I don't know why. I'm old. But for my own personal reading, I'll just, you know, do it on Kindle. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about design thinking. That's always a hot topic. And I feel it's very appropriate here because you mentioned uh, human-centered design several times, and it's uh, it's sort of a hallmark of what uh, DYD, DYDX does. Um, so you and I initially connected over LinkedIn, and you were teaching and maybe still are teaching uh, design thinking at Red and Yellow, which is the creative uh, school of business in Cape Town. What's the most misunderstood thing about design thinking? So I think the most misunderstood thing about design thinking is that people assume it's about that workshop and putting up sticky notes, but, but it's really not about that at all. I think that it is a flashpoint in the process, but it's not the process. Um, I think the other thing, I mean, I would probably say is that people don't understand that design thinking is a process of thought that you go through a process or structured approach to go through, which in my mind, the most important thing it does is it stops you from making a decision too early. And, and I think the contradiction that we have in business, especially, right, is that from a business point of view, we, we kind of think that, you know, seeing a problem, quickly judging it and quickly making a decision is being a good business leader, right? That's how we've been, that's how we've been raised and taught and everything else. And interestingly, that feeds straight into that, that whole overconfidence bias, which is, is the most dangerous bias out of all the biases that we have when making decisions. And what I, th I think design thinking does very well, it forces, especially executives, to, to be much more attuned to the research they're getting back and to be listening a lot more to the market 
than they would if they were sitting around a boardroom table with a whole lot of people from inside the business making a decision. The fact that it's always based around research, testing, you know, decisions, research, test, iterate, that process is the magic. It's that iterative approach and testing approach and taking smaller bets and building certainty versus being certain up front and then kind of dealing with failure. That, that for me is what design thinking does really well and, and the crux of it. Right. How do you deal with or how do you grow the, like the patience component of, of the process? Because, uh, you know, my experience has been, you know, they're anxious to like, it's, it's a process. The fact that there's a process, there's a start, there's an end, and we want to get to the end as quickly as possible. So when can we get to it? And when can we see results? How do you sort of circumvent that knee-jerk reaction and like nurture patience? So the way I, we do it um, and the way I recommend it be done is you have a very strict timeline with regular delivery. So like we, we do weekly feedbacks with our, with our clients, for example, right? So every week we do a show and tell of what have we learned, what are the decisions we're making, and, and you work very quickly in that week to do and test and find out stuff, right? So, so, so speed is critical to maintain momentum and, and, and inclusion in decision-making is critical. So high levels of transparency, joint client, you know, specialist teams, lots of customer feedback. And then what I find is that no one ever minds, you know, an eight-week process to come up with a, like, you know, two or three possible prototypes to go into like further testing. Because everyone sees, everyone that's involved sees the progress they've made over that period of time and go, actually, wow, this has been really quick and we've got a lot of work done and a lot of research and a lot of insight during this eight-week process and that builds up the confidence for the next eight-week process. And, and that settles people into it, I find. Doing it too often, though, like, like, like I think the momentum is critical, though. You know, design thinking isn't a slow process. It's a fast process. Speed is key. Right. I think that's that's if if we go back to the previous question about misunderstanding I think yeah the the part that um, you know it has thinking in the name people kind of associate that with like okay you know kind of like a philosopher thinks let's you know let's stand around and 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 think about and it kind of goes with that whole image of like people in a small boardroom or a large boardroom whatever and post its thinking as opposed to actually iterating very quickly on the problem to get evidence. Yeah. And, and that evidence is, is key, right? It's, it's all about, here's what we've learned. Here's the next stuff we now need to learn because we've learned this. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't have asked that question two weeks ago because we didn't know that that issue existed. Right. Is it also changing the conversation or maybe reframing it kind of around what progress uh, means, you know, kind of going beyond the... I don't know that uh, PNL or whatever, like the way that a corporate typically measures progress or or their KPIs. Um, I, I don't think it does. I think within the project, it, it really doesn't, right? Um, because generally, what they'll you know, like, like a key thing is is to have a very good understanding of how long it's going to take to get somewhere, right? And the the hardest part of it, I think, from a corporate changing the understanding is we don't know what the outcome will be yet right, is that they've got to sign on to a process where the outcome is not certain. 
you know, there may be nothing here, or we may, you know, what we find may not be as attractive as we think it will be. You know, like th there's a real risk of failure. And, and without the risk of failure, you know, there can be no, no chance of success. And I think those are the, the important things to do. Uh, I mean, if you look at the project uh, we did for Smolin recently, which was about the smart uh, dispensing units, right? So packageless dispensing. We had no idea that that was a solution to the problem that we were initially started with, right? None at all. What was the initial problem? The initial problem was, can we change how products are sold? In other words, product as a service inside lower income areas. Um, so, so not necessarily informal, semi-formal type of retail. Can we change that, how people consume things? And, and this idea was one of four ideas that got developed through the process um, and, and managed to survive and was selected at the end because it actually had the most viability, right? It, you know, it made that like viable, feasible, profitable kind of view. And that, that was the one that, that met all those criteria, that, that had the best results out of all those criteria as we tested it. So that's the one that, that we ended up going with, it, you know, from that process. But I had no idea that's what we were going to come out with at all. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about that case study. I mean, how is that an example of human-centered design or design thinking? So, so I think I think what makes that interesting as, as a human-centered design example is that the business problem was basically this, um, you know, and in kind of lower-income countries or developing countries, a lot of the retail is informal in what we call like maybe in developed world slums, uh, but. But basically, there's very little retailers. Um, there's kind of informal retailers, so it's not big chains, that are getting delivered goods through either a wholesale or a patchwork type of market and are selling it to people that are buying in cash um, around them, right? And, and there'll be like, like in South Africa, for example, 70% of those people are like a garage, like, you know, somebody's car garage that was converted into a shop. There is a window that you go to, you ask the person for what you want, they kind of put it off the shelves and give it to you, right? It's that kind of environment. Um, but that said, that environment is probably 30% of all the retail that occurs. So it's a massive amount of spend going through a very distributed network. I think South Africa is just around 200,000 of them that, that exist. So with that, ex with that environment, how do you penetrate that, that market because the challenge a lot of the, the big FMCG brands have is that they don't have any data of what's actually happening in all those stores, which makes it very hard for them to respond to any market changes, right? They, they, they don't understand, they, they're blind effectively to what's actually happening on the ground. So the project was, can we change how the products are sold in market to find ways to, to change this retail channel? Are, are there other ideas? So for us, the research going from human centered design point of view is to first look and say, well, how are people buying things? Where are they buying things from? Right? So we saw, okay, well, people are buying things from these retailers. They actually also buy stuff from hairdressers, um, you know, in community hairdressers. Um, the other element would say, well, who's using a lot of products? You know, so a lot of the guys selling food on the side of the road or maybe using lots of cooking oil and bread, uh, creches, nursery schools. You know, they buy lots of food because they feed the kids while they're there. So they're quite a big buyer. Church groups, 
and churches are very big. They buy lots of goods. So you try and find like, well, how is retail happening actually? And then we went and interviewed everyone in those things. So you interview people at churches and you interview people that are running nursery schools and people that are running hairdressers and side of the road. And, and you get an understanding what their retail environment is, where do they buy from, how do they buy it, you know, all, all these kind of things. And you, you kind of collate all this data. And we must have done I don't know, hundreds of interviews, um, you know, to, to kind of get this done. And plus kind of pulled on existing research where there was and, you know, experts and, and all that kind of stuff to come up with some ideas of saying, okay, cool, now we have an interesting body of research. Um, and we started to get an understanding of how this market is, is functioning and what people's pain points are. And then what we did is actually we even ran a, a what we call a fake ideation session. So we, we created a hackathon for like 50 young entrepreneurs from a township area to have them come up with ideas of how they would solve our problem. So us and the client got together, got 50 people that weren't us to see how they would approach the problem. We weren't really worried about what the ideas they came up with would be. We were just interested in how they viewed it. You know, what's their perspective of it? And fed that into our body of knowledge. And there was one idea that was actually quite interesting. Um, but, but you know, we kind of fed it all in. We then kind of put up all that research together and kind of put it into a structured format. And then we kind of hit an ideation session. So maybe that's now four weeks into the research. You do your ideation workshop with you know 20 odd people between the client and our people really trying to understand how what are the ideas to come up with some hypotheses of solutions and from that you then say okay well here's my four or five hypotheses ideas that could really work here um one of them was a pay toilet for example which actually came out of that workshop with entrepreneurs uh, a big problem is that there's just aren't really clean bathrooms in any of these township environments or in bus stops or in taxi stops or even in like some shopping malls. So the idea of having a pay toilet that is maybe branded by a Unilever, you know, so Domestos or whatever the brand is that they want to use. And um, you pay for that, you know, from, from, from the market's point of view, it seems very feasible because the benefit of having a clean toilet far outweighed the low cost you'd have to pay for it, which, by the way, seems very normal in the developed world, right? Our toilets in France and, you know, all around the world actually pay toilets. But but in, in developing countries, somehow pay toilets are seen as a bad thing. Um, there, there's a real stick. I don't know. It, it's a very strange stigma. And what was interesting for us, because we, we, so we explored that idea. We spoke to the mall owners, you know, shopping mall owners. Would they be willing to have pay toilets kind of put in there and managed and, and shelters? And everyone was actually very excited about the idea from an ownership owner perspective. Um, but we found that when we spoke to the Unilevers, they weren't very excited about uh, supporting pay toilets because they felt everyone should have you know, access to hygiene. And again, then, you, then we said, okay, cool. Well, that's going to be a very hard, uh, hard idea to make profitable on unit economic basis for the people running those pay toilets. Um, you know, it, it's just going to be a very hard market to make work. We looked at things like uh, doing laundromats in nursery schools um, and again you know you get it down like the idea tests well but then you find that the nursery school owners don't get paid even usually by the parents so a lot of the times parents are unemployed and can't pay them so the idea of offering the parents more services just was terrible from a from a financial point of view so we didn't do that and that's kind of how you explore these ideas so probably about, about week seven you've kind of singled out 
that this one idea of the dispenser is ticking everyone's boxes and they really like this concept and this idea. Um, and, and we're doing obviously kind of prototyping at this point with posters or with, you know, pamphlets. What do you think about this value proposition? Testing two or three versions of it. And then you get to the end of it saying, okay, this is the idea we should take into like physical prototype. That's incredible. What was the, is it is still an ongoing project or is yeah. there kind of, it's an ongoing project? It's an ongoing so- project. We, we've done three different prototypes. We now think we have a really good solution for it, which we've just, uh, starting to roll out now into you know 20 uh, Sparta shops is our next kind of target. So now we're starting to see what it looks like at scale and into five stores within stores. Uh, we did one for, so store within store is a formal model for formal retail, um, focusing on health food sector. And the informal sector is going to be again in Sparta shops, which is the kind of informal shops in South Africa that we will be rolling it out in. And yeah, and you know, like, Slowly but surely, but but I think that the, the speed is is ramping up of doing these projects, which is really interesting. Um, and part of this project, by the way, was finding the product market fit, not just for the consumers and the retailers, but for the brands that need to come on board. Right? It's it's you know, we spent about six or seven months trying to understand what is it, what does it take to get a Unilever or a Tiger Brands to say yes, I want to do this, and that's part of the process. Right, of coming up with an innovation, not just having a great product, but understanding how to sell that product and how to get traction on all sides of the market for these kind of products. Right. Figuring out what's the value proposition for, for them, essentially for all stakeholders. Correct. Yeah. And, and how do they buy it, right? So if people, our time's almost up, Nivo, but if people want to learn more about this project, uh, where can they do that? Yeah, if they just go to our website, to dydx.digital, we have some case studies there that you can see. Or look through our LinkedIn pages. We kind of share some stuff there as well, especially as our projects uh, evolve. But that's probably the best place to to find out about it. Um, awesome. How can people yeah. get in touch with you? Maybe if they have questions or want to get more information. Sure. Uh, best way is probably send me an email. It's nevo n e v o at dydx.digital, or just connect with me on LinkedIn and, and send me a message. I, I do kind of look at that you know every few days and and i'll get back to you perfect perfect so we'll put all that information in the show notes nevo thank you so much uh for your time today that was super informative cool thank you Yaniv. i enjoyed it a lot <laughs>